Welcome to the Dietitian Connection podcast, a show about nutrition, dietitians, and their success stories. Through our conversations with nutrition leaders, we aim to inspire you, to connect you with like-minded colleagues, to innovate and push you out of your comfort zone, to create robust debate, to encourage lifelong learning, and to empower you to create more impact as a dietitian. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land where you're listening today. I'm recording from the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And I pay my respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Welcome to our Dietitian Connection podcast. My name is Jane Winter and I'm an accredited practicing dietitian. And today's podcast is supported by Nestle Nutrition Institute. And we're going to be talking about iron intakes of Australian infants and toddlers by looking at the findings from the recent OzFITS trial. It found that 75% of infants aged 6 to 12 months and 25% of toddlers between 1 and 2 years were having an inadequate intake of iron. And so today I'm talking to Tim Green, who was one of the investigators on OzFITS, to explore the multiple reasons for this and as well as what additional research using dietary modelling can help us to look at ways of reducing the prevalence of iron inadequacy. Tim Green joined the South Australian Health and Medical Research Institute, or SAMRI, Women and Kids theme in January 2016, but previously he was Professor of Human Nutrition at the University of British Columbia in Canada and a scientist at BC's Child and Family Research Institute. His research focuses on micronutrients in pre-pregnancy, pregnancy, lactation and early life, and his group seek to identify micronutrient deficiencies through nutrition surveys, to better define micronutrient requirements and pregnancy outcomes in these groups through um, randomised controlled trials and also develop sustainable strategies to improve micronutrient status. So that's a pretty big brief. Tim, welcome to our podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm always excited to talk about iron and micronutrients if people are willing to listen. So, <laughs> Well, I guarantee our audience are willing to listen. Um, so, Tim, it's kind of a, I guess, a bit of a niche area, um, micronutrients and in the early um, days and years of life. Can you just sort of tell us how you came to land in this research area? Yeah, I guess I started nutrition, um, well, date myself a bit, but uh, in the late 80s and started my master's and PhD during that period. And it was the time when we had these studies showing out that if women could take folic acid prior to becoming pregnant, uh, they could reduce the the incidence of uh, birth defects like spina bifida. And I thought this was amazing, a nutrient that could do this. Uh, Little did I know that uh, not all nutrients were going to be this simple and even folic acid turned out to be complicated. But, Mm. you know, I kind of realized that you know, the first thousand days is what we like to like to refer to it now. Uh, you know, the period from conception to the first two years of life are probably the most important with respect to nutrition and things that go wrong during this period with respect to nutrition can have lifelong uh, implications. And uh, originally, um, you know, while I was in, in, in British Columbia, I was doing a lot of international research uh, in, in low and middle income countries where the problems are even more pronounced, especially with with micronutrients and we have stunting and we have anemia. 
uh, and continued that when I when I got to Australia. Suddenly, COVID came along, and I wasn't leaving Australia, so um, needed to develop a domestic, a local program. And um, the Nestle Nutrition Institute came along and said, "Well, we'd like you to do a, a, a study of children under two. And I said, "My gosh, this must have been done before. Uh, this is, we all think this is the most important group, but lo and behold, this hasn't been done in Australia. Nobody's done a nutrition survey. This group has always been put in the too hard basket. And uh, then I looked around the world and nobody's done it. So uh, except through these uh, series of, of studies that have been done and sponsored by Nestle um, called the FITS, Feeding and Infant Toddler Studies. It is surprising, isn't it, that such a massive area of interest um, hasn't actually been so closely explored. Um, and it's also, you know, when I, you're talking about your research interests, the fact that some you would imagine fairly easy interventions can have such massive implications, like reversing micronutrient deficiencies, as if we know they're there, like the scope of improving lives is just amazing so it must be incredibly rewarding to to get those sorts of results and be able to oversee programs i guess that that intervene um oh, so yeah. we sorry go on yeah yes i mean i mean it is i agree with you completely and, and it just you know it amazes me that we do adult surveys in australia but we don't do infants and if anything their diets are simpler than adults um and so i, I just if anything, I hope this study that we've done prompts the government to take on this group. So if we can do it, then the, then the Australian Bureau of Statistics can, can certainly do it. Yeah. And we spoke to Meryn Netting, one of the other investigators on AusFITS last year um, about the study. But can you just give us a really quick, for those people that may not have listened, I'm sure everyone did, but they may not have, um, give us a really quick summary of, of the trial and, and what it was about. Yeah, okay. So this is a part of a series of studies looking at the feeding practices and nutritional intakes of children under two. It was first done in the USA, where there's been three iterations. It's been done in China, Brazil, Mexico, Philippines, and the United Arab Emirates. And now it's we, we did it in Australia. So this was, as I mentioned, the first nationwide survey of dietary intakes of young children, children under two in Australia. Um, before this, we knew very little. In just 12 months in the study, we interviewed over 1,100 parents from across Australia and collected important information on breastfeeding practices, uh, the timing of introduction of solid foods. And we all, what we also did was collect food diaries, which allowed us to actually collect nutrient intake information, which is incredibly important, especially for the area that I'm interested in. Uh, I'll give you a sort of a brief overview of the summary so that I know uh, Najma and uh, Marin have covered it before. But findings were generally encouraging. Um, parents, caregivers are really doing a good job. Breastfeeding was high with many mothers choosing to continue to breastfeed into the second year of life. We don't see that in other countries, so that's great news. Uh, sodium intakes were high, but they are in all population. And the infant feeding guidelines were, were generally being followed. Um, I guess the one thing that did uh, sort of was unexpected was the high prevalence of inadequate iron intakes. And I think, as, as you might have mentioned, 75% 
overall between six and 12 months were. But when you look at the breastfed kids, about 95% were, I should say, the breastfed infants, six to 12 months, were had inadequate intakes. Just one um, quick question on, on the working out the analyses. How do you get um, a nutrient intake from breast milk? Like, how do you estimate that? Yeah, that, that, that's a really difficult one. Um, and that's probably the biggest factor, uh, biggest, sorry, impediment to doing work in this area is how do you know how much a, a, mother, a baby is uh, breastfeeding and how much is getting out? So we use equations that are based on time, but we've got all kinds of other issues that we don't know about, like what's in that breast milk. Mm. Um, is a lot of it from Fazan's is based on breast milk from Americans 20 years ago. We now have mothers taking prenatal supplements, you know, fat comp. So so many things that can change. I guess we're going to focus on iron today. And one thing we do know about iron is it is in very low amounts in breast milk. So in some ways, it doesn't matter. It's low. Um, yep. It's about, I think it's about 0.2 milligrams per 700 mils. It's believed to be, you know, more bioavailable because it's lactoferrin. Uh, but, you know, little changes in the amount of breast milk won't really have a big effect on iron. So the, the, these findings, as you mentioned, were quite high in terms of inadequacy. Um, and you said it sort of surprised you. Is this something that needs to alarm us? Well, that's a really good question. And, I, and you know, I was alarmed, but I think there's a lot of questions that we'll probably get into later on about, you know, are these recommendations set too high? You know, where's the evidence of anemia or iron deficiency in the population? We don't have population-based surveys to, to, to tell us that. Um, if we are to believe the guidelines and the guidelines are set by the NHMRC, then we should be alarmed because we shouldn't have a population where 95% of the population who are following the uh, best practice of breastfeeding are not able to achieve these, these, these uh, iron intake recommendations. Yeah, that is a real contradiction, isn't it? That you can follow best practice and yet be yeah. so significantly missing out on your target of nutrients. Yeah, not to upset the NHMRC, but I tend to say with their infant feeding guidelines and their NRVs, they're kind of talking out of both sides of their mouth in, in many ways. Yeah. So <clears throat> in terms of, you know, iron and its importance, um, and most dietitians would know that it's important for developing children, but can you perhaps just give us again a reminder on the importance of iron and why we need to make sure whatever that adequate intake is, why we're meeting the adequate intake? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think we all know, we, we always equate iron with anemia. Um, there are lots of other causes of anemia, but in, in Australia and most high-income countries, iron deficiency is the leading cause of anemia. And anemia means that we have a low hemoglobin and we have a decreased capacity to transport oxygen around our bodies, and this is going to have all kinds of, uh, of negative effects. Uh, I guess what people are sometimes not as familiar with is you can have iron deficiency without anemia. So iron deficiency anemia is sort of the end stage of iron deficiency. We can have iron deficiency, and we often, if we assess that, we assess that using, say, something like serum ferritin. There are lots of indicators we can use a lot of controversy around what is 
deficient or insufficient. And again, a lot of controversy about what the negative effects of these are. Uh, you know, right now there seems to be a lot of interest in in, in cognitive function. Uh, you know, getting too little iron does that compromise the cognitive function of the children, and does this have long-lasting effects? Uh, does it compromise immune function? Does it compromise growth? Um, and, and a number of other things. And I guess the other thing I'd point out is in countries where uh, we have actually measured iron deficiency and iron deficiency anemia, the, the prevalence of iron deficiency is often three or four fold higher than the prevalence of iron deficiency anemia. So just because we're not seeing anemia in Australia does not mean we do not have iron deficiency. So does iron deficiency over a long time always end up with iron deficiency anemia? No, uh, not necessarily, because, um, you know, we have this rapid period between six and 12 months. And I guess eventually if the child begins to get enough food, um, I guess what I'm talking about infants, it begins to get enough complementary foods that contain iron or uh, other sources of iron, they don't have to move down that spectrum to iron deficiency anemia. It's not inevitable. Uh, and so it can be halted. So currently our NHMRC infant feeding guidelines recommend iron-fortified infant cereals as a first food when you're introducing mm -hmm. solids um, to the babies. Are the guidelines not being followed? Um, is there no standardisation of what an iron-fortified cereal is? Like why, if that's the recommendation, are we seeing these inadequate intakes? Well, I think it's a, a great question. I think probably just would back up a little bit and just say, you know, that the guidelines actually say consume iron-rich foods, and by that they mean animal-sourced foods, and iron-fortified foods. And that, in this case, they really mean iron-fortified infant cereals. Now, it's very difficult to get enough iron from food. So, for example, I like to give the example of, of, of minced beef. Um, it contains about 2.4 milligrams of iron. It's more bioavailable, but could you imagine trying to get 100 grams of minced beef into a six to 12 month old child? And that's making up two to 250 calories of a seven to 800 calorie diet. So it's gonna be really difficult. Yeah. Um, the Americans have taken another approach, uh, which I don't really like. They're recommending universal supplementation for all infants who are breastfed. Um, why don't I like this approach? Well, again, it detracts from the breastfeeding message that you know breast milk is it can do everything. And also it's a leading cause of poisoning amongst children under five because you know, little is or they swallow the so you know. So I do think the fortified food route is probably the most um, uh, practical one, but we've also got to consider there are different types of fortified foods. Um, you know, we all know that our Weetabix is fortified. We have some breads that are fortified, but these are really fortified for older children and adults. Um, infants would never consume enough of these foods to really make a major difference. But why iron fortified infant cereals are interesting is they're actually mandated by Fizan's because Pizans has recognized the importance of these foods in providing iron to contain uh, between 20 and 50 milligrams per 100 grams of, of, uh, of iron. So they make an ideal 
uh, fortification uh, vehicle. Uh, the problem is, is that we don't use a lot of them in Australia. And uh, I think something around 25% in Austin's for using iron fortified cereals. And this may be only for very um, so clearly it wasn't making a big difference because even in those breastfed kids who were getting iron fortified cereals, they were still struggling to meet, uh, their, um, requirements. Yeah. And I certainly, I can't even imagine just the thought of a parent with a new baby having to think about providing iron supplementation when they're breastfeeding just seems like a stretch anyway. I mean, yeah. just impracticality of thinking about. And as you say, like we know that breastfeeding is the optimal, you know, food for these yeah. babies. Um, it just seems so counterintuitive to be providing supplementation. Um, and it detracts from the message. And as somebody who works as a, a pediatric um, dietitian in gastroenterology, we often had to recommend these supplements and the parents hated it because they would stain their teeth. They were these black syrups that they would spit back out again. So I, I'm sure dietitians are familiar with, with, with the issues with these, with these syrups and, 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 and liquid uh, iron supplements. So I'm not keen on them. No, I'm also not sure whether iron supplementation can have the same effects on, you know, in adults, iron supplementation can be kind of give you gastric side effects and all those sorts of things. So Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So the next step in OzFits is, um, I understand, to do some modelling um, and some dietary yeah, modelling to look at the impact yeah. on iron intake. So can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, sure. Um, I, I mean, I guess we should probably just back up a little bit and, and review a little bit of terminology if that's okay yes um, good idea because you know that we have these things called nutrient reference values um we tend to think that these are these were set by the nhmrc oh, 10 or 15 years ago and they're largely based on the canadian american uh ones that were done five years before that and there is a tendency to think that these things are you know, set in stone, they're based on solid evidence, but I can tell you as a, a reviewer of them, they are absolutely not. So basically one of the terms we have to consider is something called the estimated average requirement. So when we look at the prevalence of, an, of not having enough of a nutrient, we look at the percentage in the population that is below that estimated average requirement. So what is the estimated average requirement? Well, the estimated average requirement is the intake that will meet the needs of 50% of that population. So it's not meeting all of that population, it's just meeting 50% of, of the needs of that population. So that's what we use as our indicator. Um, so when we talk about, we often talk about uh, inadequate intakes, we're really talking about the prevalence of inadequacy for iron. So with that in mind, our goal was to look at these iron fortified infant cereals and to look at two things. If we increase the amount of them that was consumed, we, and we obviously had to replace other foods in the diet, and we looked at the amounts of iron that were being added to these foods, could we meet the estimated average requirement of most of the children but the other thing we had to be really careful of is that we didn't push kids too high because we also have this other thing called the upper limit, mm. uh, which is the sort of lowest uh, amount of a nutrient, in this case iron, uh, known not to cause problems over the long term. 
So we had to think of both. So what we did is we came up with three scenarios. Um, we looked at a low intake scenario. And what was this? This was 150 kilojoules. We replaced 150 kilojoules from their diet and replaced it with 150 kilojoules of iron fortified infant cereal. And for those of you like me uh, that can't deal with kilojoules, that's about 35 calories. Uh, we're not talking a lot. Uh, it's, it's about nine grams of iron fortified cereal or about 40 grams prepared. And so that was our low intake. So these were kids that were, you know, we wanted to try three different levels because you know, it might not be possible to get all these amounts in. Then we did a medium intake, which is closer to what the manufacturer recommends, which is um, 300 kilojoules or still only 70 calories. Um, and this corresponds to about 18 grams of iron fortified cereal. And then we have this high intake which we know no, most kids are not going to consume, but we sort of put it in as a safety factor that if some child happened to consume 450 kilojoules or 27 grams of iron fortified cereal, were they at risk of exceeding their um, upper intake or getting too much iron? And so then we used different levels within the range that Fazan's permitted. And that was between 20 milligrams per 100 grams of iron and 50 milligrams per 100 grams of iron. And so you did the modeling to have a look and then what happens. So then you found so, what is best? What is best? Well, first of all, I can say that currently the iron fortified infant cereals are fortified at around 25 milligrams per 100 grams of, of cereal. And we found out that 35 milligrams was probably the best. So 35 milligrams per 100 grams of cereal. Yeah. And, and you know what did this result in? Um, well, for the median intake, uh, the EA, it reduced the number of kids below the EAR to just about 25%. So it didn't get rid of all of it, but it got rid of, 25 or 75% of it. Yeah. So we've gone from 95% inadequate to 25% inadequate. And for all infants, it reduced it down to 5%. That includes the breastfed infants and, and the mixed fed infants. Um, for the low intake, and we did this because we knew that, you know, not every child is going to be able to achieve that we reduced it to about 53%. So we moved from about 95% down to about 53% prevalence of inadequacy. So we're halving the prevalence of inadequacy. And for the high intake, we basically solved the problem for everybody. And we only had 2% of children over the upper limit, um, which is okay because the upper limit isn't designed for a single day. It's designed mm -hmm. for long-term exposure and it's very unlikely that they would consume that. So basically we found out that we can deal with this problem by encouraging the consumption of iron fortified cereals and increasing the amount of iron added to the cereals. And of course, I guess the immediate reaction is, well, you still haven't solved the problem, but remember this seven milligrams of EAR is not a magic number. It's a continuum of risk is how I'd like to say it. 
and any shift in iron intake upwards would be expected to have a beneficial effect. So if you've moved a child from two milligrams to 5.5 milligrams, you still haven't got to seven milligrams, but that's still a lot better than 2.5 milligrams, if mm. that makes sense. So I imagine that there's a lot of um, babies out there or infants between the six and 12 months being introduced to solids who are not getting any cereals possibly um and if they are getting some cereals they're not iron fortified and i guess we also have to consider that um whilst we know that meat has a very bioavailable source of iron a lot more parents are perhaps using more plant-based um foods now anyway and not even offering meat um to babies so would your sort of you know talking to parents um be that like Iron fortified cereal should definitely be included as one of the starting I think, foods. I think they, I think they, sh- they, they. Sh- I would recommend highly that they be included. I wouldn't want to say don't eat any meat because no, no, no. I, yeah, you know, we want to encourage during that period is when we get exposed to new flavors, new tastes. So we really want to introduce a variety of things. Meat is a challenge for parents because they. You know, if it's their first child, how do you serve meat? I mean, yeah. and you know, you've got to mince it up and all that sort of thing. So, iron fortified cereal sort of provides a bit of a a safety net. It's and children aren't usually fussy eaters when they're young, or at least the experience of my children. They get fussy when they when they can have an attitude and make up their mind about what they're going to eat. So, yeah. So, I think iron fortified cereals w- w- would be a, a solution, and I think it would be great if if the manufacturers would increase the amount of iron in these cereals, which they are totally permitted to do under uh, Fazan's regulations. Yeah, right. So, and I guess the other issue for parents is that, you know, when you're introducing solids, it's so variable how much. It could be one teaspoon one day. It could be the whole bowl. That could be a high intake child the next day. Yeah. You know, it's, I guess we don't want parents to get too hung up on on these numbers. Yeah. No, and I can't, and, and I agree with you completely. And I, I mean, when we, the biggest problem with dietary assessment, you know, in any population is we don't eat the same thing from day to day and it varies considerably. And some days a child will eat nothing. And you can see that in our thing. And the next day they eat a lot. Um, that's why we usually never rely on a single day, which we didn't in OzFits to, to look at, at it's true in adults and it's true in infants, but you know, trying to get some in. I mean, the lowest dose really corresponds to about three and a half tablespoons over the day of mm. iron fortified cereal. So, you know, that's made up because, you know, you mix it up with either water or you can mix it up with breast milk or you can mix it up with, what you know, with infant formula if you want. Um, but the volume increases, but it's three and a half. The manufacturer's size is about seven tablespoons that's a little bit for a six, too much for a six month old. But remember again, we put this, we put this group of, we have this grouping between six and 12 months. Well, there's a big difference between a six month old and a 12 month old. And, and also I, the thing I find fascinating is until they're six months of old, they only need 0.2 milligrams of iron because that's what's in breast milk. And then suddenly at six months of age, we say they need seven milligrams of iron. Um, <laughs> So, you know, how do you make sense of that? And of course, it's not, you know, it's increasing as they get bigger during that age, but you have to put a, a, a bracket around around the age. Um, 
So it, it is it is any amount getting in and is is, is useful, I believe. Yeah. And so um, before we go on to what your, your next steps, because I'm sure this has opened up like a Pandora's box of more research yeah, questions. Pandora's <laughs> <laughs> but even just from sure. the current work that you've done, are there any other sort of key points that you wanted to mention here that um, well, I think, we missed? Well, I think the, the interesting thing is we also were a little bit worried about if we introduce these iron-fortified cereals, is it going to displace other nutrients in the diet? Yes. And we actually couldn't see any evidence of other nutrients being harmed. In some cases, uh, we were actually increasing, actually coming closer to meeting recommendations for um, some macronutrients. Um, so, I, you know, I'd like to point out that, yeah, that, you know, one of the things you do are concerned about if you remove something from the diet and replace it with something else, what effect is it going to have on the whole diet? I think iron-fortified cereals are just one part of a package of what should be happening between six and 12 months of age. We've talked about meat, but, you know, exposing children to different tastes and textures as appropriate uh, mm. is, uh, is, is, is what needs to happen. And, um, and I think generally speaking, um, from what we can see in our, in our, from OzFits, uh, Australian parents are doing a good job of this but maybe just a little bit of work on the iron and others will, will, will are, are certainly concerned about sodium, but this is a, a population wide um, mm. problem, not just young, young children. So what, what, what are the next research questions that you think need to be addressed um, um, to try and help? Okay. Well, solve I, I, this? I guess, yeah, I guess there's sort of three things that sort of pop to my mind is, is this EAR too high? Um, you know, where do we come up with this EAR? And basically it was done by adding, you know, taking a, a breastfeeding woman and measuring how much she needed for herself, how much she lost every day, and how much needed to go into um, breast milk. And that's where they came up with the seven milligrams of iron. Um, you know, I often try to say, well, if you really wanted to, to find out the proper uh, estimated average requirement, and I like to give the vitamin C example because we all know that vitamin C ends up in scurvy. We would take a thousand children and put them on different doses and find out the dose that only 50% of them die of scurvy. Now, that's the kind of, nobody's going, that's unethical, but that's the kind, that, that's the kind of, re, I mean, that's not the kind of research, but that's the yeah. problem that we face. We'll and a lot that. of our data for NRBs and things like that is extrapolated down from adults often from men, often from men in prisons who got time mm. off for participating in, in these studies, who, you know, which we wouldn't consider quite rightly ethical today. So, yeah, is that seven milligrams is too high? And I guess one of the ways we're going to figure out whether that seven milligrams is too high is we need a survey, a nation, national survey or a population-based survey to look at biochemical indicators of so blood indicators of iron deficiency. So one, it would be anemia to look at it, that, you know, the, the end of it, and ferritin would be the other. Of course, there is a bit of reluctance uh, by parents to give it, let their, subject their poor children to unnecessary blood draws. So we're looking at uh, non-invasive markers of iron status. And one we're quite interested in right now is urinary ferritin. So, uh, you know, parents don't mind giving up their child's urine and we, and we're, and we're, 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 we're testing that out now. So 
we're hoping to get there. I guess the, the, the other thing is, um, how, how did babies get this iron? How did, why did we evolve to have this period of iron deficiency? And maybe it's perfectly fine. Maybe there are no long-term consequences and maybe it's just natural. Or what, what happened in, in earlier times? We know of societies that used to, the mothers used to masticate, chew the meat, and then feed it to the children. Um, Aboriginal populations did that in Australia. <laughs> Perhaps, that, I mean, I, there's no doubt that that was probably a, a good thing to do. So there are things like that. And yeah. I guess the, the final thing is, I mean, we really would like to do a large trial to really determine, you know, if we do supplement the population by whatever means, uh, can we show an improvement in clinical, in, a, in, a, in an outcome? And probably the one that we would probably fo focus is on cognitive development, because yes. at least that's what our group is is known for. And so perhaps randomizing children at a certain age to receive iron or no iron, because the current practices is no iron, and to see what happens to IQ tests at two and three years of age. That would also help answer the, answer the question. So I think those are the, 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 the three burning questions in, in in my mind and the um your modeling study um published yet or not yet it is under consideration with a major journal where okay. we are we're hopeful that it would be published um uh, it may even be up as a preprint. I'd have to check and see if it's okay. available if people are interested in actually actually seeing it. But it shouldn't be long now. Um, there's certainly abstracts of it available that I could that I can share. Yeah, great. So we can put those in the in the show notes. So and I guess um, if anyone's interested, if they look under Ausfits, they'll find um, the trail of papers yeah. that are associated with that study. Yeah. So other than this work, all the Ausfit work has been published in a supplement in the journal Nutrients, which is freely available, and uh, we can put the link up yeah. for that. And that, so they can learn all about the study. They can look at the prevalence of inadequacy. Just might have to wait a little bit longer to see the modeling work that we've done. But I'm quite happy to share an abstract uh, uh, around it. And. Is there anywhere else that you would suggest dietitians who are our primary audience um, can go to for information about, you know, the infant feeding or um, iron? Yeah, I mean, I think there's lots of good information out there from, um, you know, various groups. Um, I guess I probably want to point out one more, one more wrinkle, I mean, uh, in this issue is when we we're talking about populations, right? When we do this yes. sort of work. And that we, that we use the estimated average requirement for. Um, but when you're actually sitting and counseling an individual, you have to use the recommended dietary intake. And that's set higher because we don't know an individual's requirement. We right. know what a population's requirement is. So we set that higher. And believe it or not, that's 11 milligrams. So we did a little bit of work to figure out what do you need to do to get 11 milligrams of iron in. So if we want to meet 11 milligrams of iron and we do not include iron-fortified cereals, here's what we would need to get. We would need to consume two Weetabix, which are fortified, providing 110 calories, two slices of fortified bread, 100 grams of uh, beef, and that would allow for 500 mils of breast milk. 
So I guess my key point is here is that it's even harder when you're dealing with a, a popular with an in, when you're counseling an yes. individual than when you're dealing with a population. And yeah. again, just to be cognizant of that, there's plenty of good literature out there from you know um, the NHMRC and that sort of thing, and Victoria Health. I some websites I found, and you know all the, all the governments have uh, state governments have good information out there. Um, however, um, it's it's actually it isn't easy to achieve no. these indicates that we're, that we're talking about. So based on all of the, the work you've currently done, um, the modeling and looking at all the data, sort of what's your, your key sort of take-home message for dietitians who are listening to this, who are working with, um, you know, parents of infants and toddlers who are introducing solids particularly? Yeah, okay. So my messages would be consistent with, um, the Australian infant feeding guidelines with a few uh, modifications. You know, keep breastfeeding. That's great. Wonderful to see. Introduce a variety of foods. Start with iron-rich foods, but the, and that does include some meat, but also think about including some iron-fortified cereals, um, especially if we can get uh, the manufacturers uh, to increase the amount of iron. They need to increase the amount of iron eat a variety of, of, of different foods and textures and, and just um, so that the children learn to appreciate different types of foods and continue, continue to enjoy them as they get older. So any dietitians we have listening who actually work for um, food companies or an industry, that's their message to take back to their NPD departments is to have a closer look at the iron content of their fortified cereals um, for infants. So it's, it's very good advice. And this is an easy one for them because the legislation is already there for to allow them to increase it. So it's not like we're going to have to go to physicians and pre present a whole scientific doc, uh, you know, a document it's within their current permission. So I, I would encourage them to do it. Excellent. Well, look, thank you so much for your time today, Tim. It's really interesting to hear all those gaps along the way from EARs, NRVs, RDIs, um, how that converts to babies and their actual intakes yeah. and whether that actually has any health repercussions or not. Um, this is obviously just the tip of the iceberg and we'll keep watching the work to, to see how you progress with it. Yeah, I guess the problem is as the time more time you spend studying nutrition, the more gaps that you yes. and you would think with the importance of iron and how long iron we would have sorted that one out yet, but we still haven't. And it makes it exciting to be in the field, but it can be frustrating for those working in the field and those and and obviously parents and and, and caregivers as well. The answers, so yeah, it's a moving it's a moving field. And we'll put the links to uh, to the Ausfits papers that are published um, into our show notes, so people can read up um, in their own time on on the finer details. So thanks for your time again, Tim, and thank you to Nestle Nutrition Institute for supporting our podcast today. To get all of the links and resources we discussed in this episode, you can go to dietitianconnection.com/podcasts. And if you'd like to support the Dietitian Connection podcast, please leave a review and a rating on the Apple Podcasts app. Tell us what you thought of this episode, what you learnt, and share your guest requests for us to consider for future episodes. 
We value hearing from you and we really appreciate your feedback. So please, please hit that review button.